Test one, two. It's working, isn't it? Can you hear me? Okay, good. Try that again. Good morning. morning. Turn that down a little bit, Linford. We're going to start today in the book of James. And Eric, you're going to be on James overload because Friday mornings we're studying the book of James. (laughs) Before we start into James, I want to ask a question. I want to test your news sources. Where would that verse be in vogue during this week's news? Anybody? I'll bless those that bless those, and I'll curse him who curses you. Anybody? Okay. How about that? What is the Iron Dome? The Iron Dome is the uh, protection system that Israel has to knock out missiles that come from Islam. The GOP slams Democrats for defunding Israel's Iron Dome. Now the good news is the next, and that that bill never did pass, the good news is that the next week they took that out of the bill 
not because the Democrats felt bad about it, but because they got a lot of backlash from their constituents. We are really close to the end times. And so I'm going to jump off of that. And if you hadn't heard it, then you're not listening to the right news source, or you've sworn yourself, or you've sworn yourself away from news. That's you. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> if it's worth knowing, you'll hear it from me. Is that the point? <laughs> <laughs> the good news was they took it out of the bill. How do you like that? <laughs> okay. We're into the book of James, and it begins with James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question that we have is, which James? And uh, James is a, a popular name in the, in the New Testament times, as is the name Mary. And if you study towards the crucifixion, you'll see Mary and James and Mary, the wife of this and that. But you don't see James at the foot of the cross, you see John. So the question is, which James wrote the book of James? So we have some candidates here. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them the twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So we have some options there. First option is James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee's. But he was, he was martyred too early to have him have a chance to write that thing down. The second one is the son of Alphaeus, and you'll find that option one and option four are in bold uh, font because a little bit later on we're going to ask the question, should James even be in the canon of Scripture? And we'll put down all the different requirements that they use to determine what's in and what's out. And what you'll find will be James, the brother of John, would be qualified based on those things. But these others not. The father of Judas? Nope. So there it is, the half-brother of Jesus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So that begs the question, and he was martyred in 62 B.C. The secular historians, I kind of lean on them more than the, the church writers, uh, except like the first century church writers, they were kind of on the mark, but James was known within Jerusalem to be so um, prayerful that when some of the naysayers decided to throw him off the pinnacle of the temple, people, the, the um, secular, Josephus, Josephus said that he was probably the reason that the Romans came in 70, or well, defeated them finally in 70 AD. He was so highly regarded by both Jew and Gentile and Jews were being saved. And we'll come back to that notion of Jews, okay? So that begs the question, did Jesus have siblings? Who says yes? Who says no? Who says I have no clue? Tell me, John. <laughs> okay. You can't say Jesus had siblings because John found a picture of them. That doesn't fly. Here we go, Matthew 13. In, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas 
and are not all the, his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So you see four brothers and at least two sisters, so he has at least six siblings, and they're not all up in that picture. How do you like that? So we're going to come at this from the angle of James, Jesus, half-brother. So there you have the word Adelphius, Philadelphia, love of brothers, and that means from the womb. And for sisters, uh, let, me, let me come back to that little click right there, versus anepsios. The word cousin, that word anepsios only appears one time in the New Testament, and it's cousin. And the reason I bring that up is around the third century, the branch of Christendom that ultimately became the Catholic Church wanted to have Mary to be totally immaculate, totally without sin, and now the, uh, my, my one daughter came home with a book, Mary the Co-Redemptrix. So it wasn't until the third century that somebody came up with the theory that maybe Joseph was a widower and all those kids were older than Jesus. But the first century writers all said they were out of the same uterus. Adelphia, all right? So, there's the name for the, the, the female version of that. And now we have to ask the question, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why is that verse important? To be saved, you must first be lost. Mary was a sinner, just like you and me, she was conceived immaculately. So the Catholics call the, um, the day in the U.S. the Immaculate Conception. Well, that Immaculate Conception simply means that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by a man. She was a sinner just like you or me. So did the brothers believe in Jesus? Bob says no. Okay, here we go, John 7. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea. Now they're, they're kind of mocking him at this point. Leave him and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, I have a brother, I have two younger sisters, and I've lived with them for quite a while. And we stay in touch, and so you can see I've been connected with them for a long while. Do you think anything from my brothers or sisters wore off on me? Do you think anything I did wore off on them? I hope so, on the, on the, on the good side, right? On the good side. So we're going to look at this from the perspective that James lived for 30 years with Jesus, or minus a few because he was the younger brother, obviously. James lived for almost three decades with Jesus. So what do you think that family life was like? Now, the dad was a carpenter, right? 
Do you think Jesus ever made a mistake carpenting? Yes, because if you make a mistake carpenting, that's not a sin. It's just, it's just what happens, right? So we have to put this in the, in, the, in the right perspective. You know that song, Away in the Manger, written by Martin Luther? He says, uh, the second verse talks about no crying he makes. Well, it's not a sin for a baby to cry. Babies are, with, are without sin. They're not, they have not reached the age of accountability. But can you imagine, I'll save those thoughts for a slide that we can run it together with, all right? What if Jesus were your big brother? That's where we wanted to go right here. Jesus, this was never said by Mary or Joseph. You're the oldest, you should know better, right? James, maybe, maybe mom and dad said, why can't you be like your big brother? Was James a transient from Egypt? Was he born there? Did he understand the Egyptian language? We don't, there's a lot of things we don't know about Jesus' early life. Where was James and everybody else when Jesus was at the temple? You know, if Jesus was the only child, it, you would think Mary and Joseph would have more of an accountability. But they had, a, they had a number of kids, and let's face it, times have changed. When I was a kid, my mom would say, go outside and play, and don't come back till 5 o'clock, and there was this big monster church in our town that if you stood from 6 to 12, that would be six feet. So no excuses. You could see that clock from anywhere. If somebody in a town, I grew up in a town, would say, go out and play and don't come up to five, that per, that way they'd go to jail. All right? So I could see this caravan of people leaving uh, Jerusalem, going back up to Nazareth, and Jesus being told, or if he were around, go play with the other kids. Well, he wasn't around. He was with the leaders in the temple, right? So, we'll come to some of these specifics here. How about the singing the Psalms of Ascent? Now, Psalm 117, 118. They would sing these psalms. They didn't have hymn books, and they certainly didn't have a projector. They sang psalms. That was their hymn book. And I can picture Jesus knowing all the words. He, he was all the words, okay? How about Psalm 119? Every paragraph started with an you know, A, B, C, D. Every paragraph started with another letter to help people memorize Psalm 119. So James could be floundering with it. Jesus has it just right. Can you imagine in the home front, and we'll think about some of the chapters within James. They were not a wealthy family. They did not have bunches of bedrooms to deal with all those kids. They probably went to synagogue, and Joseph, if he were on the lower socioeconomic status, he might not have been given one of the best seats in the synagogue. And so you have chapter 2, which talks about don't show partiality. And can you imagine... I didn't have to be a grown-up to misuse my tongue. It got me in trouble way early in life. Can you imagine Jesus, and he would do it in a non-offensive way. You know, there, there, are times when, there are times that are teaching opportunities, and there are times when you're just not welcome to say anything. 
But Jesus understood those things. You think, can you see him saying to, to James, you, see, you know, the tongue is like a world of iniquity. It, it's a fire fire. He says, if you can control a, the bridle of a horse, you can control your tongue. All these things could be gathered up. And, uh, you know, there, there's a saying that I haven't heard in a long time that says a family that prays together stays together. Who's ever heard that? Family that prays. You know, people try to tw twist that now. They say the family that plays together stays together. That's where our society's gone. I'm sorry. Never mind. Okay, well, <laughs> Jane enjoyed it. <laughs> Turn up the hearing aids. So I can picture that family being a praying family. And, you know, Jesus answers prayers. God answers prayers, yes, no, and wait a while. And sometimes the impatience kicks in. And one of the very first verses we're going to cover talks about patience. Can you picture Jesus saying to James where he says, you know, he wouldn't use these words, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He probably said something like, you know, let's, let's just keep at it. Let's just keep praying. All these things running around in the brain of James, but Jesus was just not so obtuse that James figured out that big brother was God. Jesus did not have a halo, okay? He just happened to never get into trouble. Goody two sandals. Then they grow up. James was not at the crucifixion. James may not have believed even at that point. And Jesus gives Mary to the only apostle, the only guy, friend that was there, and that was John. And we're going to see later on where Jesus appears to James. Now, wouldn't it be something if that was the moment when James got saved? Just like Paul. Paul was, Saul of Tarsus was saved when Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. Can you imagine... Uh, put yourself in the mindset of you just lost a loved one. If somebody's in current events, I'm sorry. You just lost a loved one, and you know that person's dead, and then they appear to you. That'd be pretty interesting. My dad was a funeral director. One time, the body goes just like this on his table. That was just a, a muscle thing. He put down his tools and went in the house. And then he came back and finished his work. But that body was not alive. It just happened to stand, to sit up, and it kind of spooked my dad. But brother Jesus appeared to James. We don't even know what they called each other, right? They did not speak Greek, but the Gospels we read are in Greek. Was Jesus called by Yahshua? Was James called by Jacob? We don't know. There's all kinds of things we don't know. The Bible says the secret things belong to God, and it's our job to stir up or to, to learn whatever we can. And we'll never know it all until we're the other side of the, of the grave because the Bible says we'll know him even as we are known. Where was James at the crucifixion? Where were all of his other followers? What if Jesus were your big brother? For I've delivered to you as of first importance 
that I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Right here is the gospel, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to go down. Jesus appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time. Now, if Jesus appeared, I mean, physically appeared to us right here, right now, do you think he'd be silent afterwards? There's no way. There is no way. Just like the woman at the well, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is this, is this not the Christ? So these people might be going to James and say, buddy, you missed it. 500 of us at the same time. Peter, James, you missed it. And then finally, he appears to James and then to all the apostles. Imagine finding out that your big brother is God. And then, finally, Apostle Paul. If my big brother were God, it would blow my mind. And that's where the epistle of James comes from. Various introductions. Some call it the most practical book. Some call it the Proverbs of the New Testament. And you can read all those things faster than I can say them. We're going to take some comparisons here. Swindoll says, he, he did the counting so I can just lean on Swindoll. 109 verses and 54 imperatives or commands. So this is why uh, the book of Proverbs, uh, they call James the Proverbs of the New Testament. Here's an example of uh, imperatives. Trust, don't lean, acknowledge, be not wise, fear the Lord. James, count it, be quick to hear, be doers of the word, show no partiality, etc. It's a book of imperatives. Now, I can't imagine big brother Jesus launching all these imperatives. It would probably alienate little brother. But I expect big brother Jesus had an opportunity to counsel James in many of those things. Now, how many people could remember me saying, my first pastor said, one, okay, my first pastor said, and you've also heard me testify that before I was saved, he was dumber than a fence post. Yet here I am, a lot of years later, I'll get, don't do the math, a lot of years later, quoting what he said to me, said to the congregation. So this could be James quoting what Jesus said during the family, during the family uh, life, time, in such a way that he wasn't, alienated or put off, but it did get registered. So figures of speech. In Proverbs, they talk about the, the way a man is with a virgin, and he has uh, the other different kinds of examples. And in James, they're talking about the tongue, and he compares the tongue to fire, to horses, and to the rudder of the ship. Hebrews, James, and the timing. So, the earliest Christians were Jews, and you see a quote there from Acts chapter 2, that's Peter on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved, within short order, another 5,000 get saved, and James is with those people. The original Christians were Jews. Now in James' writing, he brings up all those characters, and I can Abraham, Rahab, Elijah, Job, he didn't have to introduce them. The audience knew who those people were. 
It would be as if I go into uh, the deepest, darkest Africa and I wanted to, to share the gospel. I would have to explain to those people who those players were because they'd never been exposed to them. Well, let's face it, there was no printing press. The scriptures were uh, highly uh, rare. And so people that weren't in the fold, in the synagogue, they might not know who those people are. So the original, the original audience are Hebrews. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. So that we're going to get into that. Hebrews is doctrine, James is application or works. The earliest concentration was Jerusalem and then spread. There's Acts chapter 8. After, after Stephen was stoned, the people dispersed. Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. I want you to notice that word church, again, underscoring uh, the original audience. That word church is different than the word assembly. And at least in the King James, when we dig a little bit deeper, in chapter 2, you're going to see the word assembly. The Greek word for assembly is synagogue. And if you think of Paul, where did he go first to preach city by city? He went to the synagogue. So this is a very early scripture, and it's written originally to the Jews. That word scattered is diaspora. It's the same word that they use in the, in the parable of the, the farmer scattering the seed and some thrown on stony ground and some in the thorny ground and some on the fertile ground. It's just like those Jews. They got dispersed. Some went into places that were uh, more amenable to them, and others went to places that, you know, not so much. Now, a Christian Hebrew has double trouble because they're, uh, they have uh, discrimination from the Gentiles as well as from their bloodline. So I just quoted verse 1. Look at Galatians. James and Peter, their ministry was given to the Hebrews. And we'll just read that very quickly. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So James is writing to the Hebrews. Here's the key verse. Faith without works is dead. And if you study that chapter, there are three different kinds of faith, a demonic faith, a dead faith, and a dynamic faith. In King James, the Bible says, the devil also believes and trembles. And I've, modern translations are more accurate. They'll say, the demons believe and tremble. That's a demonic faith. They knew that there was a God. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Then there's the, the dead faith. A faith nonetheless, but a dead faith. And James is talking about a dynamic faith. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we're created unto good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. That's the key verse. James in or out of the canon. So here are the ways that they decided uh, which books were in and which books were out. Was the author an apostle 
or have a close connection with the apostles? Well, that James did because he sat as part of the Council of Jerusalem. The other James, James the, um, the brother of John, he was killed in Acts chapter 12 by Herod. Is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? Now, there was some controversial there, and Martin Luther never did really come to the position where he said, yeah, I think it should, because Martin Luther, his ideas were Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, and didn't quite see the point that James was trying to make. And we're going to pull that out because we're going to compare the writings of James with the writings of Paul. So here we go. Did the book contain consistency of doctrine? And that's where Martin Luther had his problem because you're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians. By faith, Abraham offered his son Isaac, works, and we're going we're gonna to dig through that. Did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values? Well, of course, every, every one of those imperatives that James gives us is in line with everything else, and it wants us to live a better life. So God decided what was in the, the, the canon, it just men had to figure it out. Please stop me with any questions, okay? James versus Paul in a nutshell. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. They seem to be opposites. Just if that was the only pair of verses you've seen, maybe so. James versus Paul, okay? James is addressing the work of the behavior in relation to faith. We've recently, Friday morning, sorry, Eric, uh, had a dialogue about Abraham and Isaac. And I'll save a lot of that for a couple weeks from now, but there's a Jewish man in our Bible study that is really stuck on works. Genesis chapter 12 either 12 or 15, it just escaped me. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It wasn't until chapter 22 when Abraham was asked to offer his son Isaac. Now, let's go back to Adam. When Jesus said, Adam, where are you? Did Jesus know, did God know where Adam was? Why did he ask the question? He wanted Adam to know that he was not where he was supposed to be. When they say that Abraham was justified by works, he was already saved. He was already given promises. And my guess is he talked about his dialogue with God with his son Isaac. Then they go off towards Mount Moriah, three days' journey, and Abraham says, we are coming back. Now, picture the scene. Picture yourself as a parent or a dad or just somebody that's responsible. You're coming up with the knife, and you're getting ready to come down. And the angel says, God will provide himself a sacrifice. When that whole scene is over, Abraham is walking back to camp, saying, I would have done it. Isaac is walking back to camp saying, 
Dad would have done it. They were justified in their minds that they, were, that they had faith. If we stay on the book of Hebrews, the Bible also says that, in fact, it's in, it's in uh, James, I'm sorry, Rahab, by works, led those spies out. Delivering, uh, uh, rescuing the spies wasn't what caused her to be saved. Because she had faith in what was going to happen, she helped the, the process along. I'm getting way too deep here. James is concerned that the outcome of the faith be fruitful. Paul is saying he's concerned with the object of faith, Christ. Not tangled up with self-righteousness, and we're going to see that verse that's on the wall many, many times, Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. James writes shortly after the resurrection, and his audience, they, they understood the Old Testament, or they were exposed to the Old Testament. Paul writes later, and he's writing to an audience and addressing questions that have never been asked before. He now has a Jewish and Gentile audience. Paul says, take the gospel, believe it. Take the gospel in. Sorry. James says, take the gospel out. Paul says, he saw Christ in the heavens establishing our righteousness. In the book of Acts, the Bible says, I knew a man 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, who was caught up to the seventh heavens, who saw things, who, who heard things that he cannot utter. Paul saw Christ in the heavenlies. James saw Christ on earth, telling us to be, we're never going to be perfect. The better word there is mature. Once upon a time, I was a hiring manager, and I would read, hundreds of resumes. And I figured out there's a difference between somebody with 20 years of experience versus somebody who's got one year of experience repeated 20 times. James wants us to be the one who has one growing experience as opposed to doing the same thing again and again and not really growing. In fact, we're going to see a verse a little bit later on if the clock, clock behaves, where Peter says we're to grow in grace. Paul dwells on the source of our faith, and James dwells on the fruit of our faith. I think the batteries are getting weak here. Paul lays the foundation as being Jesus Christ. That comes 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 3. Aside from Christ, there is no foundation. James says, let's build on that foundation. James says, yet be rich in good works. I'm sorry, Paul says that, and James says, yet be rich in faith. So James wants us to grow. And we're going to see some interesting words. Uh, King James typically stays with one word, patience. But you go to a modern translation, you'll see steadfastness, you'll see uh, long-suffering, you'll see perseverance. So let's just follow the bouncing ball. There's James 1.4. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What he's saying there is, 
each of us is going to face tribulation. Job said, man is born to trouble just as sparks fly upwards. Now, before we get into the depths of James, why would I say proceed with caution? If these imperatives are taken the wrong way, you can leave after this study being like the ultimate Pharisee. But Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, the goal of this command is love. The goal of James is not to make us like a, a two-by-four for a spine. He wants us to be mature. He wants for us to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, so that people could see Jesus living in us. Titus 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward the people. That's sort of like the abridged version of James. For we ourselves, went from third person to first person, we're going to see that again when we do a little bit more within Titus. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Again, Paul in Ephesians said, And you hath he quickened or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath, even as others. Even James, Jesus' little brother. For the grace of God has appeared that offers, all, offers salvation to all people. Notice third person. Now it's going to turn it to first person. It teaches us, teaches everybody. Grace appears that they can be saved, but grace does something for the believer also. And that, that's really the theme of, of James. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives while we're still wait for the blessed hope, the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay. Does anybody recognize any of those people? Yoda, okay, he's the modern generation. How about the top line? Yoda's in the bottom right. Remember the show Kung Fu? And the guy in the front, David Carradine, the guy in the back called him Grasshopper. You're too spiritual to watch that television stuff. I have no idea who that person on the bottom left is, but these people are pedagogues. They teach us. And the Bible is my pedagogue. And that's what James is trying to do. Grace is my personal trainer, my pedagogue. Grace teaches us, this is from Titus again, James, uh, grace teaches us to live godly, soberly, and righteously in this present world. Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? Now, again, we're going to get a lot deeper when we get into James. But in chapter 2, he talks about partiality. You know, if a, if a man comes into the synagogue in goodly apparel and you have him sit there, and the guy comes in in the bib overalls and you have him sit there, 
And then James turns right around and he says, if you're guilty of a portion of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. And then he goes on and he talks about murder and he talks about uh, adultery. Should we sin that grace might abound? King James says, God forbid, or by no means. Legalism is defeating. This is, you know, we're, we're in this to understand why study James and to proceed with caution. Legalism is, a, is defeating. Why? I thank God I'm not like this publican. That was the Pharisee, right? There are over six billion people in the world, and if you can find one worse than you, then you'd be a perfect candidate for Phariseeism. Our sins look worse on somebody else. If they're my sins, so let's think about this. When God confronted Adam, Adam sort of blamed Eve, but he was really blaming God. He said, well, God, that woman that you gave me, she caused me to eat it. What did Eve do? Eve said, the devil made me do it. We're going to learn again in chapter 1, and lust, when it has conceived, bringeth forth sin. Now, let's think about that word conceive. The sperm hits the egg, and that's the conception. We have an eye gate, and we have a heart gate. If I talk to the guys, I don't know how women's brains work. I've been trying to figure it out for a long time now. If a pretty woman goes into the eye gate, it doesn't become lust until that conception has hit, when it hits the heart gate. The eye gate, it's in, too bad, I can't get it out. Lust conceives, just like when that sperm hits that egg. Lust, when it conceives, bringeth forth sin. We start by pasting things on the refrigerator, you know. I don't, I don't do smoking, drinking, cussing, chewing. So what? You asked the question once, can something be a sin for me and not for you? That's in James also. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So if I come to the point where there's something I should be doing and don't do it, I'm sinning. You might not have been given that that push. What are you doing over there, by the way? <laughs> Aha, okay. Grace pedagogues us to take those things off the refrigerator. I got my refrigerator. I don't smoke, okay? Grace tells me, so what? But you're guilty of anger and impatience and on and on, and all of a sudden, that thing does isn't as, as glorified as I one time thought it was. You don't cuss. Well, I'll tell you what. I've gotten into more trouble over things that I've said than things that I didn't say, regardless of what my, what my vocabulary is. So just because I have a different vocabulary than somebody else, so what? Grace teaches us to move in the right direction. You've heard me talk the last few Sunday school classes about have a blessed day. 
I've got a new one I'm working on because I think I got that one as a habit. You say it so many times, it becomes becomes a... This is an exercise, okay? Picture yourself grocery shopping. What is your facial expression when you're grocery shopping? That's not it, Jane. (laughs) That's not it. Okay, now, you're grocery shopping. You see the prices are higher than they were last week. Thank you, Joe. And then somebody's coming towards you with a baby in the shopping cart. What does your face do then? It becomes, it's a huge smile, right? Thank you, Carolyn. Now, in between those two, there is a face that shows pleasantness. It's not, I'm grocery shopping. It's, you're not showing your teeth, but it's, there's a smile there. And I'm working on myself to have that smile when I'm walking through BBs or Redner's or Wally's or whatever. And people go like this because I'm not the dead face. And again, it causes me to think about my behavior because I'm concentrating on this thing. For me, it knows to do good, and if I don't do it, to me it's sin. Grace pedagogues us. You say, John, that's so mundane. You apply it your own way in your own lives of how God could be prodding you to do something just a little bit different. Grace is more demanding than legalism because it's looking for growth. Legalism could say, my hair can't get any shorter, I'm okay. I can't not drink anymore, I'm okay. I can't not curse anymore, I'm okay. Grace wants us to grow. Oh boy, what time am I supposed to quit? I've, I've been out of class for so long. 9.45, is that the right time? We'll go through these next very, I'm going to stop right here now, okay? On this slide. Saved, now what? Been saved, so what? I was saved on a Sunday night, and Monday morning I went into work and I said to my buddies, guess what happened to me last night? I got saved. And, you know, love, 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 and then all of a sudden I became mature. And love, love, love was replaced with discretion. I fell into the rut of legalism. It's like a cancer. But let's think about this. If that's time, and that's spirituality, we start Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you are saved through faith. Romans 10, 17 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But right smack in the middle is this verse. Whoop. Right smack in the middle is this verse. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So what does that curve look like as you're going through time and there's spirituality? You get a big bump right up front because I'm a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Then the question becomes, where does that graph go from there? Is it flatlined until I meet Jesus? Or do I accept the challenge that grace gives me that I should be growing? And it could be a straight line. It could be an arc like that, but it's not that kind of a graph. The poor people listening to a podcast are going to say, what is John talking about? Because they can't see the hand, right? 
And so we're going to bring in 2 Peter, that same growth curve, and notice it starts over again. I went all the way up to love, and then we did starting all over again. The words there give every effort adding to your faith virtue. Give every effort. I'm way over time. The foyer's getting full. We'll quit and pick up again right there this coming week. But he